All right, today's passage comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy beyond exhortation. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, and peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory." The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Special welcome to those of you who are uh, joining us online as well. We're, we're happy to have you worshiping with us here uh, this Sunday morning. We know it's kind of, a, kind of a crazy world for everyone here, so thanks for those of you who are here with us as well in person. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, being able to worship with you safely online here, uh, starting next week, but then also hopefully and not not too long being able to gather again in person because we have, we have really enjoyed being able to be back together these last few months. Uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Habakkuk. Um, we are in our third of four sermons on this. And, and my guess is this is not a book a lot of people have maybe uh, engaged with before. It's kind of a, a shorter book. It's not one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. It's kind of sandwiched in there with a bunch of other, uh, what's called the minor prophets uh, in our Old Testament Bibles. 
Um, and so it's just one a lot of times people may have never been exposed to, but I really feel like it's a real sort of gem of a book and, and really applicable to this moment um, because I think it really does sort of resonate with us in the hardship um, that, that we're living in. It's, it's honest, it, it's raw, it's sort of... Um, you know, pays attention to, to the world that we live in, the world that we are experiencing here in 2020, maybe a world filled with division and injustice and just general kind of brokenness. Um, and, and it kind of speaks to us and, and what God has to say about that stuff and then how we move forward uh, sort of living in the light of that. Um, and so kind of where we, we've come from at the beginning of the book, um, the, the, first, uh, the first four verses is our first sermon. We just talked about Habakkuk's sort of lament or his complaint to God. Uh, and last week, Julie talked about what God is, his response to Habakkuk was, but it was an unexpected one. It wasn't really the response that Habakkuk was waiting for, and uh, he kind of felt like it was a little bit unfair, maybe, how God had sort of chosen to respond to the problems in Israel that Habakkuk had brought before God. And so Habakkuk takes his stand, we saw at the end of last week's sermon, um, kind of waiting for God's response to his sort of challenge to God almost. And, and this week, God is going to kind of come and defend his justice to Habakkuk. Um, he's going to kind of defend what he's doing about the injustice and the evil and the sin that's in Israel, that's in Babylon, and that's really in, in the whole world. That's just kind of riddled with the stuff that Habakkuk has brought, uh, brought to God um, in that first, first part of the book. So what we're going to do today is we're going to really engage with God's response to Habakkuk. And that means we're going to have to talk about the topic of God's judgment um, and and, and the, 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 what he has to say to Habakkuk says a lot about what God, how God views the world and how we view God's justice or his judgment. Now, I do think this speaks to us now where we're at. We, we look at our own sort of division, our injustice, our, our flaws as a society, and a lot of people have been kind of asking the question, what is going on with you know, the craziness of, of this last year? Uh, I know some people have asked, well, maybe this is a judgment on, on, on us from God or something. And it really opens the door to asking the question, how does God relate to us in judgment? D does God kind of go out of his way to sort of punish us when we do something wrong? Is that something we should be expecting, we should be waiting for? What, what does that actually look like? I think, unfortunately, when we do talk about God's judgment, it gets talked about in some really sort of unhelpful ways. And these sort of maybe caricatures of God can start to form in people's minds based on how they view or they've heard about God's judgment get talked about. So maybe on the one side you have a picture of God that is he just is sitting up in heaven and he's chucking lightning bolts at people who are messing up, right? Hey, you just, you, you take that, you dirty sinner. You just had a lustful thought and you liked it and so shazam, take that. Something bad happens to you now that's supposed to like you know, make you scared of sinning again or something like that. And, and this God sort of seems harsh. And it's not helpful that, we, you know, different you know, cultures and different times in Christian history, we've had these sort of self-styled prophets who maybe do proclaim God's judgment is coming. Um, and, and it kind of maybe it creates this picture or maybe it's drawn from this view of God in the Old Testament that he's just sort of this ornery God, right? This kind of cranky old man who is like, get off my lawn. 
on all of you people, and if you don't, I'm going to spray you with a water hose. But by the way, the water hose is a flood, you know? Like, that, that's kind of the view I think we have maybe of God in the Old Testament sometimes. Um, and and maybe, maybe we, it even contributes to this dichotomy we have. That is, you have different gods in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you have this wrathful, vengeful God. In the New Testament, you have this peaceful, gentle God in the form of Jesus. And, and, and I think sometimes, really, people have a view that there's this sort of inconsistency between the Bible, between the two pictures of God that's presented. Now, all of this is, is a, prote- a projection, right? But of course, we're uncomfortable with the, idea, with the view that we, we sometimes can have of God, that caricature I'm talking about of him, um, where he is just sort of, you know, minutely following everything we do and looking for ways to make us um, uncomfortable because we're sinners, and so, because, because of that, you know, we start to have maybe a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Now, it's hard because I think the problem is that we are sensitive to the need for justice today, right? That we resonated with Habakkuk's um, re- response to, to, to the injustice in the world, right? We resonate with that strongly. We, we want to see something done about evil as well, right? So it's a little bit of an inconsistency, I think, for us to not like a picture of God who does something about evil, um, but then also cry out about the evil in our own world. And so I think a lot of times if you don't like a view of God who does something about evil, what you're probably reacting to is, is maybe a disagreement about the moral judgment or, or we think punishment doesn't fit the crime. And so I think we have a lot of you know, people who feel that way in society. Maybe we feel it our, ourselves as well. And so what we start to do is we start to maybe think the idea of a God who does anything about evil is just kind of silly. It's kind of antiquated. And instead, we, we kind of replace that picture of God who cares about evil, who does something about it, with a picture of God who just leaves us alone. And the only time he really hops in to do anything in our life is when we need help or we, we, you know, we need a moral or a morale boost or something like that. Now, thankfully, the God of Habakkuk, I think, is far more interesting than both of those caricatures. Uh, the caricature of a wrathful, ornery, moral monster on the one hand, or a sort of hyper-tolerant, but really ultimately apathetic parent who, who just kind of wants to keep you happy, right? Like, the God that is presented to us in the book of Habakkuk is, is far more interesting than that, I think. And so, we're, we're going to talk through uh, who that God is today and what it looks like for him to do something about injustice or evil in the world, um, but in a way that is more nuanced and more understanding of what his actual desires are with that and what it actually looks like for him to do that. So what I want to do today is I kind of want to have three parts to the sermon. The the first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about Habakkuk, specifically in its own context. But then like Julie talked about um, early on this, uh, this morning, Habakkuk actually gets quoted in the book of Romans. And so what I want to do is I want to jump to Romans and talk about what, what the parallels between the, the section of Romans where Habakkuk gets quoted and the book of Habakkuk itself are as we sort of weave into uh, the gospel, because that's what Paul's talking about in the book of Romans, the citation from the book of Habakkuk. And then finally, we will kind of talk about what all that means for us now in our faith. We'll kind of try to apply this view of God and judgment and the gospel and all of that to our own lives. So, let's start in the book of Habakkuk, like I said. Um, Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. 
So God responds to Habakkuk by saying um, that you know, everything that Habakkuk you know, is talking about, this un, this, both the unfairness and the injustice of Israel that he's talking about, he responds with, like, with, with a revelation or a vision that has been presented to him. So, so, so he responds by saying, this is what's going to happen. It's like a prophecy kind of. It's a, it's a revelation of what God is going to do in response to everything. And he, and he tells them, write this on tablets, okay? I don't want you to just write this down on a piece of paper, which could get, you know, something could happen to that. But if you write it down on stone, nothing's happening to that, right? This, 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 this tablet will, will stay firm. It will stay firm for, for a long time. And, and, and no one will, will have the opportunity to forget what God is, uh, is about to do because of all this. I think also, too, the fact that he's telling them to write this on, on tablets is a reference to the, uh, the law in Sinai. If you go back to Moses, the Ten Commandments, remember God writes down the law on these two tablets. He writes down all Ten Commandments on them, and that's something that is kind of vital to the life of Israel. They even put them inside the Ark of the Covenant. They hang on to these tablets so nothing can happen to them. And so we, we kind of get a reference to that as if what God is saying here is almost a sort of new law or, 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 a, or a summation of the law that is given in Moses that is supposed to be understood as having that sort of weight to it. This is not just a short-term thing. This is a really important, big thing. And I, and I want the herald to run with this. This just means that, that, that this can be preached for a long time because of what, it, what the content of it is. So God continues, though it linger, wait for it, or wait for him is actually the, 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 the pronoun that's described there for the vision. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So if it seems like it's taking a while to get here, don't worry, it's a coming, all right? It will, it will, it will arrive. Um, and and the, the vision or this revelation will kind of create a dichotomy of people, two groups of people based on how they respond to it. Um, kind of like how, like if there's a, a Supreme Court you know, ruling, right? You, you kind of get two groups of people that are formed in the wake of that, people who agree with it or disagree with it, people who respect it or disrespect it. Okay? The, the same is true of this. Two, two groups will be created. Now, the first group of people is those who are, who are puffed up. That word enemy there is actually not in the original Hebrew. Um, it's just the, the person who is puffed up, and they kind of threw the word enemy in there to help us understand. But, but someone who, who is puffed up, whose desires are not right, uh, the, the, the arrogant, the resistant. And the second group is the righteous. Now, we'll come to that group, the righteous, here in just a second. But first of all, let's talk about the first group of people and what's going on with them. So if you remember what Zach read um, earlier, earlier on, following after this, we get this kind of description of what is going to happen to those who are puffed up, who are arrogant, who don't respond to the, the revelation of God's justice here. And it gets categorized into these five woes, kind of detailing um, five things that Babylon and, any, and people who are puffed up and prideful like Babylon do. And uh, we, we hear about economic injustice, we hear about um, uh, poor leadership, we, we, exploitation, abuse. You can even read um, some of what's in there as perhaps slave labor um, and, and the slave labor that Babylon used to sort of uh, build up their society. So all these things that Babylon has done, God is pronouncing these woes on them. We can kind of read it like a, like a legal description of the charge that God has against Babylon here. Now the punishment 
for these uh, woes that are being delivered is, is a sort of boomerang effect. Okay? What, what Babylon does and build the building up there of their society will sort of rebound back on them. That's the, going to be the punishment for what happens to them. So, example here. Oh, here we go. I still have the five woes in there, I guess. Um, I already described them, though, so sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll linger on that. Um, but um, verses 16 and 17, a little, a little example here. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. So the violence that you have done will now happen back to you. It will kind of bounce back upon you. You thought that you could go do this violence and and you would have no response of violence back of you. But actually, the same thing that you have done to sort of build your empire will now happen to you. It will bounce back on you. And what this looks like, right, you know, you can think of it in a practical way, right? For those who kind of build an empire based on evil and violence, like, it makes sense that those who are having violence done to them will respond in violence, right? That, that, that's probably what's, what's in view here. But, but what we should recognize about what God, what God is saying here is that God is not going to restrain that in any way. God is going to allow that sort of negative effect that evil has of a sort of bounce back effect on the person who does it. God is not going to restrain that. If anything, he, he might accelerate the violent reaction. He might help, help it to, to, to have that effect to come back on Babylon, but it's nothing that Babylon hasn't done themselves that is going to happen to them now. So think of this not so much as karma. I think you can, you can you know, hear this and think, oh, this is just like karma. You do bad, you get bad. It's kind of an equal and opposite reaction everything you do. It's more like smoking, right? It's more like you do something that has a consequence and eventually it takes its toll on you the more you do it. The more that you, the more that you smoke, the more that your lungs are going to get filled with tar, right? And eventually that will kill you, right? If you don't restrain it or someone else doesn't restrain that coming back to kill you. And that's what God is talking about here. God is not going to restrain the effects of this evil that Babylon is doing to the nations around them. He's actually going to, if anything, he's going to help, help it to have its natural consequence. But again, this is not anything that Babylon has not brought upon themselves, basically. That's the punishment. That's the judgment that God is having on the nation of Babylon. So that's the, the first group of people that he talks about. But the second group of people here we find in, in, in um, Habakkuk 2.4 is that the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Now, in my opinion, you can read this a couple of different ways. You can read it as the righteous person's faithfulness will be the thing that, that makes them righteous or makes them live. Um, but I actually think from kind of some, some reading that I did this week, that actually the best way to read this is the his there, that the faithfulness that's being described is not the faithfulness of the righteous person, but actually the righteousness of God himself. Or sorry, the faithfulness of God himself. So the righteous person will, will live by the faithfulness of God to fulfill the promise of bringing the vision to pass. And that's kind of why I said you notice that the vision even gets talked about in these sort of pronouns. And this is, 
actually how ancient, we, we know ancient um, Hebrew people translated it this way because when they translate it into Greek, that's actually the way that they rendered it. So um, I'm kind of standing on kind of some firm foundation there of the, the original hearers that, that to them, to live by that faithfulness is to simply believe the astounding word of the Lord. And to remain puffed up in pride will sort of bring this judgment or this disaster that's being talked about in, in the description. So think of it like this, all right? Here, here's an analogy to sort of help you to maybe understand what is being talked about here. Now, um, if you've ever, I've, I've, I've never, I don't know what I'm talking about, like if you've ever, like I have experience with this, okay? But hens will like cover their chicks up so that predators can't come and get them at night. They kind of protect them by, by sitting on top of them basically at night. So any of the predators that are running around can't come and, and pick off the chicks as they run around at night. Because nighttime is, is this time where you, you know, you, 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 things are on the hunt, you, you can't see them coming, and so the chick remains safe by sort of believing the mother's word to stay under, underneath her. Now, if a chick decides to be puffed up in pride, right, and think, I can fight those predators on my own, or, or the predators, they don't even exist. There will be no consequence for me going out and playing in the dark, Right? Nothing, will, nothing bad will happen to me. I think I'll be fine. Right? They will sort of experience the consequences of that. And so the prideful, the, 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 the people in, in this, the passage we're talking about are kind of like those chicks who are puffed up in pride, thinking, kind of willfully ignoring, thinking that they're immune to God's judgment and choosing to, to run around without the protection of God, thinking that any predators that are on the loose, that are not being restrained by God, won't come in and get them in any way. But the ones who are sort of faithful, the ones who trust in God, are like the, the ones who remain underneath him in belief and trust, staying safe from the, the judgment, which is really just the consequences of rejecting God that is swirling around outside of them. And so really what it is is a sort of salvation by catastrophe, we could describe it as. This disaster comes as God doesn't restrain the predators who would maybe come to devour us. And in, in the Bible, there are many predators we could talk about. Um, predators such as... Um, uh, like, like evil forces that are running amok, right? Uh, the, the sort of natural consequences that we have is we, you know, like we talk about Babylon, building a society on violence and getting violence back. Those, are, those types of things get talked about as like predators that are running around in, in the Old Testament. But also we can talk about just general kind of chaos, the sort of undoing of creation, right? Even the flood account, which, which seems very straightforward as God just flooding the earth, Right? When we actually dig into that account, we find that what God is doing is he's, sort of, he's, he's not restraining the chaos that humans have brought on the world that would, without God restraining it, would sort of unleash chaos back upon them. That's actually how the flood is, is described. And so while it is God doing something, it is actually him just not restraining the chaos that humans have unleashed on the earth which sort of undoes creation itself. It's really interesting when you, when you sort of dig into what's going on there. And, and so um, the, the prideful, unjust, violent, abusive acts of, of the Old Testament uh, sort of short-circuit, the sort of self-destruct, sort of rebound back upon them as God no longer restrains these destructive forces which would normally um, try to devour them that he usually holds at bay in grace and in love. 
God doesn't stop it. He, he maybe accelerates it, if anything else. And so circling back here in the book of Habakkuk to chapter 1, um, Habakkuk is crying out for deliverance. And God says, this is how I'm going to deal with, with this problem from chapter 1 and your question about fairness. I'm going to deliver faithful Israel from the injustice that's taking place in Israel and from, and from Babylon, which is sweeping across the world at the time and, and will now consume Israel itself. I'm going to deliver, faith, deliver faithful Israel through judgment of unfaithful Israel and by taking down Babylon. But in that... Those who remain true to the faithfulness of God will survive. And a new reality of grace will be established as the old one is sort of swept away. And what is needed now is patience as we await that taking place. That's what's happening here in the book of Habakkuk. Now, interestingly, like I said earlier, the Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans as he talks about the, the bringing of the gospel that he's writing in the book of Romans. And this kind of moves to our second point, like I said. I want, to, I want to talk about what Paul is saying here in Romans because actually there's a lot of similarities, which is really, really cool, I think. I mean, obviously, Paul didn't just randomly pick a verse to, to throw in uh, to, to the book of Romans and say, see, here you go, proof text. He, he's comparing the situations in a sense. He's, he's finding similar uh, trains of thought into his gospel and what's going on in Habakkuk. So, in the book of Romans, Paul is eager to share his gospel with this Roman church, a group of people he has not yet met, um, and he, but, but he wants to. He wants to establish good relationships with them. He hasn't met them. He, they've maybe heard some things about him from other people, some of it maybe not good, and, but he has a reason to sort of want to be their apostle and maybe even use them as a base of operations so he can kind of continue missionary um, uh, endeavors further west, and, and Rome is further west than where Paul had been at the time. Um, and so, so, so Paul sort of tells them his gospel to make sure that they're on the same page, to make sure they have an understanding of who Paul is and what he has to say about the gospel, perhaps um, against the slanderers who had been saying bad stuff about him. And so when he does that, like I said, he sort of plots some similar data points right away all in chapter one. So you have the revelation of God that Paul talks about and specifically his righteousness, which is being revealed. You have um, the faithfulness of God, faith coming from God and our faith in response to him doing what he said he would do. We have actually the wrath of God as well being revealed. And we have a, a picture of judgment as sort of a giving over to the effects of sin. So let me walk through some of those, those parts of the book of Romans here. So, so Romans 1 uh, verse 17. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel. So God is revealing a, a vision, a revelation to us now in the gospel. From faithfulness for faith. As it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. He continues on in verse 18. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. So to explain how God's righteousness comes, right in the, in the beginning section there, to talk about how the righteous person will live by faith, um, he has to now kind of pivot to talking about this revelation of his wrath, his justice, which is also being revealed at the same time here. Now, what does it look like? What does what his, his revelation of his wrath or justice look like here in the rest of the chapter? Let's jump to verse 22, verses 22 to 24. So while they were claiming to be wise, this is people who had sort of traded the truth of God that has been revealed to us for worship of, of, of created things. That's what Paul says here. 
So claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that looked like mortal humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to their heart's desire, which led to the moral corruption of degrading their own bodies with each other. So we see this here. God is abandoning. He's sort of giving, these, giving them over to their sin, giving them over to their, their worst impulses, to separate themselves from God, to look for life in things that God has created rather than the creator himself. And this is happening in the past, it's happening in the present, and then happening finally and ultimately in the future. So, so what do we do with this? What do we do with these sort of, uh, what we learn about how God deals with evil and injustice and sin based off the book of Habakkuk and based off of the book of Romans here? And also the revelation of his, his grace, of the gospel through faith in the midst of all that. Well, a couple of reflections, a couple of applications here based off of that. First of all, God's justice isn't him giving us misfortune, all right? It, it, it's him kind of giving us over to our worst desires, Remember I said earlier, we think of God's wrath as him sort of, sort of going out of his way to kind of mess things up for us, right? To make us miserable, to make us unhappy, like a perennially disappointed parent, okay? But in reality, the, the picture we actually find of God, when we, when we learn about what his justice or his judgment looks like, is it's, it's him in sorrow sort of letting us have what we want. It's him abandoning us even though that abandonment will ultimately lead to uh, the consumption of us, a rebound effect on us where we will, we will, we will have the consequences of that. And I think we think often of grace, God acting kindly or favorably toward us is him just leaving us alone, right? And, and, we, and, and so we think of interruption or misfortune. Anytime we have something bad happen to us, we might start to think, oh, is God punishing me right now? That's, that's maybe how we think of it. But I would actually say, Maybe we should flip that, right? I think, if anything, God is actually, he's gracious when he intervenes to us, even to make us uncomfortable sometimes, to sort of stop us from going on the path that we're going, right? And, 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 and instead, of, um, instead of stopping us from going the way we're going, he, um, he, he sort of interrupts, he stops that chain. But, but then when he lets us to go on that path, when he leaves us alone, that's actually is described as wrath or judgment in the Bible, right? Uh, the desire that we have sometimes lead us, leads us to be devoured. Kind of like a chick who desires autonomy, who desires to separate themselves from their mother despite the fact that the world is filled with vicious predators in pride refusing to remain righteous by trusting in the mother hen for life. I would even go so far as to say as hell itself isn't, just a, isn't like a jail cell that God throws bad people in that he doesn't like and locks them up there. It's a place outside of the city of heaven that God will establish someday that people willingly choose to be in because of their pride. So rejecting living in the city that God has established on earth for, for, for the flourishing and health of people but it, that is found in him, people rejecting that and choosing to live outside of that place. I actually think that's the, that is the best understanding of what hell will be like someday. Now, as we talk about us, we, just, we have to be careful, right, to, to create too clear of a sort of do good, get good sort of thing. Remember I said this is not karma and the gospel like Jesus, or Julie, last week talked about, <laughs> whoa, I need to repent of that, but I think Julie's really great, but I got to be careful what I accidentally call her. Um, 
that grace isn't fair, right? That's what Julie talked about last week, right? Grace is not fair. We do not get what we deserve. That's the point of the gospel, all right? And so we have to be, be careful not to create too much of this sort of do good, get good um, uh, vision of what, what is happening in the world. But we shouldn't be surprised when we try to create a kingdom of our, of our own desires if that doesn't somehow uh, stand on its own, if we start to see that that won't stand despite our best efforts to create that apart from God, that it's, it, it is built on a, on a foundation of sand, that it collapses in on itself. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens because that is how it works. Second point of application is judgment is good in that it brings deliverance from evil. Okay? We should rejoice that God does something about evil, that he, he, is, he, is, he has judgment. We should rejoice that he saves those who have faith and walk in faithfulness in their king in the midst of a world filled with injustice and evil. We should celebrate that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't cringe from that, I think. right? We should have joy in that, especially as we look around the world that we live in today and we see injustice and evil all over the place. We should be happy that God does something about the evil in the world. And that when he does intervene in us, it's, it's not so much judgment, right? If we continue on in the book of Romans, we get to chapter 8, um, Paul says that there is no condemnation, there is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God will stop us on our way sometimes. But that's, that's called discipline. That's, called, that's like a, a faithful parent sort of stopping us from our worst desires, trying to teach us what it looks like to follow them well, to have, have flourishing uh, life. And it has a sort of purifying effect as parts of our old selves are sort of cleared away so we can be replaced more and more with a sanctified uh, new self that God gives us. Okay? So it is good that God does something about evil in the world. But, but, we should be sober-minded about judgment. Judgment can never not be a weighty subject. Whenever we approach this in the Bible, we have to, we have to refuse the, the, the impulse to treat it flippantly, okay? Because God does not get like a sick delight in this, right? Every time we read God talk about it, we, we, we see his sorrowful heart as he turns people over to sort of the destructive consequences of, of their sin, in a place like Ezekiel 18, God can say, um, uh, I don't delight in this. I want you to turn. I want you to repent. The whole reason this is happening is so that you would hopefully see the error of your ways. You would turn and you would repent and you would find life in me. That's why, that's why this happens. And so because God doesn't delight in it, because God is sober-minded about it, we as well shouldn't delight in it. It should bring us to sorrow too. Imagine you're Habakkuk and you're reading what's going to take place to Israel and to Babylon. I would imagine you'd want to throw up, right? That is not something that Habakkuk is not getting a sick pleasure in sort of going and telling people how bad they are, right? And God's going to come smite them now, right? This is not, this is something that Habakkuk approaches, uh, I think, sober-mindedly. I think today we do have people who sort of pronounce God's judgment on other people and do it in a sort of smug way when re in the re reality they have no clue what God is up to, right? Unless they want to claim the, the mantle of prophet, right? They want to call themselves a prophet that to go around and sort of claim whatever God's up to in the world and boy, bad stuff's happening to you or I think bad stuff is going to happen to you and God is going to be happy to judge you someday, Come on, that is, that is not the pattern of the Bible. And actually, if you, if you go to the Old Testament and you sort of find the, the description of what it looks like for prophets, you'll find that um, 
being a false prophet, going and speaking for God when God did not actually tell you to speak, carries a death sentence, right? So great was the, the, the effect of speaking for God when you were not actually supposed to speak for him because of the destructive uh, um, um, consequences of that, the, 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 the impact that that would have on people claiming to speak for God that they said, Let, we're just gonna put the death sentence on this to try to dissuade people from doing this unless God is actually speaking. And so, again, I know people like to say 2020 or coronavirus or whatever, this is God's judgment on us. I, wouldn't, I, don't, I think we need to refrain from trying to speak to what God is up to, right? To not go out on the limb and say what God is doing, okay? No matter what, what we, we think God is doing in judgment, we have to call what has happened in this last year tragedy. That's what it actually is. And we can, the thing we can know for sure is that God is calling us to grow and to find true life in him as idols sort of melt around us, as we sort of see the crack and everything. And another reason why we should not be the ones to go around proclaiming God's judgment on people is because, as we've talked about, when God's justice sweeps through, this is not something that anybody escapes unscathed from, right? If you're going to turn the lens on someone else's sin, right, whatever standard you set up for them is going to also reveal you to be flawed as, as well. You are, gonna, you are not going to come out the other side of that viewed as righteous when everyone else around you you think is, is so bad, so sinful that God's going to do something about them. But in the story of, of, of the Bible, which is, a, which is a story about God's justice, there is also salvation in the midst of catastrophe. Right? And that is, that is the unfairness of all of this. This is, this is where, where God rescues us from the consequences of our sin. Okay, and this is our last point of application here. Jesus takes God's judgment on himself, and we are to put our faith in his faithfulness. Now, that hen analogy that I used earlier, I didn't use it because I'm some great farmer, and I know all about you know, hens and chickens, and I thought this would be a great one to talk about. I actually am stealing this analogy from Jesus. Okay? He talks in Matthew 23 about how he longed to gather Jerusalem under him like a hen gathers her chicks at night. He longs for Jerusalem to come and under the safety of his wings to save them from the coming destruction that he has been talking about as a prophet um, as he goes around preaching the kingdom of God coming. But much of Jerusalem wouldn't listen to him. And so um, while Jerusalem rejected him, we don't have to. We don't have to reject the, the, the call to come have faith in Jesus as we uh, nest under the um, Nest under him in his saving wings, for lack of a better term there, right? Because Paul continues on in Romans 4, in verses 23 and 25, and he says, The scripture says that it was credited to Abraham wasn't written only for Abraham's sake. It was written also for our sake, because it was going to be credited to, to us too. It will be credited to those of us who have faith in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over because of our mistakes and he was raised to meet the requirements of righteousness for us. So the same justice that God, or that Paul talks about in Romans 1, that God talks about with Habakkuk, this sort of handing over to the consequences of your sin, Jesus himself is handed over to the consequences of sin. But not his sin, our sin. And so like a mother hen who is protecting her children by 
being the one who is attacked by the predators, but keeping her chicks safe, Jesus takes on the predators, he takes on the destructive consequences of sin onto himself, so that those who remain in him through their faith will be delivered, who will find grace in the midst of this. This is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he was abandoned for us. He was abandoned so that we may have life. Despite the fact that we have all been chicks running around in the dark, playing hide and seek with predators, thinking we'll be totally fine, despite that fact, despite the fact that we have rejected God, Jesus takes the judgment of God on himself. He delights in salvation, not death. He is full of mercy. He is abounding in love. And we can remember that in 2020 or no matter what year we're living in. No matter how far we fall, no matter how much we reject God, we can always turn to him to find life because he has taken the consequences of our sin on himself. So our reflection question today, this is a question for you to ponder um, as uh, we worship today, is, is we see God's justice and mercy in Habakkuk. Which of these things do you feel like you need to lean into now? Where, where is God calling you uh, to respond in the midst of, uh, of what we've talked about today? I'm going to pray quick, I'll walk us through communion, and then we'll, we'll head into that time of worship. God, we thank you that you do something about evil. You don't just pass over it as if it's not that big a deal. You don't try to brush it under the rug. Lord, you, you are just and you are righteous, which means you have to do something about the evil that has been unleashed in the world through our sinful hearts and the sinful hearts of people throughout history, God. But we also thank you that you provide a way of grace for us. You provide a way for us to be delivered from that justice in the form of your son, who takes the weight of sin, takes the abandonment on himself so that we may be delivered. Or he takes the consequences of our sin on himself so that we may have life, God. Help us to find our life in the faithfulness of the one who has died on our behalf this week and every week as we move forward, Lord. We pray all this in the, in the name of that one who died for us, Jesus. Amen.